It's time to get this party started. It does sound like a party in here. I'm so, so grateful for all of you that are here each week. You've been persevering and you've made your presence known here as we have been trudging through the deep weeds of the country all year long. I'm so grateful. And I, I think I speak for the rest of the teaching team when I say that we are so grateful and feel so privileged and so honored to open the Word of God with you and to learn right alongside you. So thank you for persevering. We're on the home stretch. We have three weeks left. Three weeks. So my prayer for all of us is that we will open God's Word expectantly, ready to hear from Him, and walk away changed by Him. And now this morning... Listen to these words from Psalm 1 as we prepare our hearts to worship Him in song and to hear from Him in His Word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted near streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, before we open our word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to teach us today. Father God, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be your children. We know, Lord, that there is no way that we can read your word and understand it without your Holy Spirit being present today to teach us. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to do just that, to illumine your word for us so that we might hear your word today and go away as changed people. Not just people who hear the word, but people that do the word. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Raise your hand if you remember the television show, The Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies aired in the mid-1960s. In fact, y'all, it was a black and white television show when it first started. And there were only three networks. And it quickly became the number one show on television. It was so funny because it was so outlandish. It was the story about a man named Jed who was a poor mountaineer. He could barely keep his family fed. But then one day he was out shooting at the food and up through the ground came Today. 
Israel has struck oil, so to speak. God has redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, and he's brought them to this new land to make them his treasured possession, to make them a holy nation, a kingdom of royal priests. What is He's giving them riches and land that they did not earn, houses that they did not build, olive trees and vineyards that they didn't plant, and wells that they did not dig. What's God doing here? God is setting the groundwork to reclaim the fallen world, to redeem the world that he created. And God's people have a designated role to play in that mission. God chose Israel to be the vehicle to manifest his redemption and his glory as a nation in the land that they are about to inherit. In the covenant, God had promised his presence and his continued blessing if Israel would be faithful to trust him, to love him, to worship him, and to obey his commands. That sounds like a pretty easy thing for Israel to do, doesn't it? But there are going to be evil influencers in the land. Everywhere, the temptation will be for Israel to pick up the customs of the surrounding nations and to leave the God they love. Now, when I was in high school, I was very involved in Young Life. The reason that I joined Young Life is because I heard that they took a spring ski trip every year over spring break. And my parents were old. They weren't skiers. They didn't do much. They hardly ever even traveled. And I knew that the only way that I was ever going to get to go skiing was if I joined Young Life. And so I did. And that very first year, my sophomore year, I can remember going and skiing for the first time. And I was really impressed when I looked out at some of the adult guests and their children who had also come on the ski trip. Some of their children were, sw- were skiing for the very first time. And one of the ways that I noticed that these fathers would teach their young children is that they would ski up right behind their child so that their child was standing or skiing on their skis between the parent's legs. And if the child was really small, they would grab on to the thighs of their dad. And if it was an older child, the daddy would usually just put their arms around the child. So when the child, when the father started shifting his weight to turn, the child's weight would shift right along with the father. When he shifted back the other way, the child would turn back the other way. He's effectively, the child is effectively resting in the arms of his father and begins to feel the rhythm of the movement and remain in lockstep, lock-ski with his dad. Well, this is a picture of the kind of relationship that Moses is trying to convey to the people of Israel. They're going to need to be in lockstep with Yahweh if they're going to live on mission in the promised land as his chosen people. Now, last week, we were introduced to the Hebrew Shema that's in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following. This became the central affirmation of the Hebrew faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words are a testimony 
of both God's sovereignty and man's obligation to love him with his whole being. Jesus confirmed this to be the greatest commandment in Mark 12, verses 28 through 30. And then he went on to say, the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now these two phrases are really just a reduction of the Ten Commandments that we studied again last week in our lesson. The first four commandments are loving God, and the last six commandments are loving others. Israel was to display a deep love for God in response to his redeeming love for them. And out of that love, they were to display a deep love for each other. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19 tells us. This is how the other nations would learn about the one true God and his love for his children. Today's passages in Deuteronomy address the specific ways to fulfill the Shema, to love God with heart, soul, and strength. The law was to be internalized. It was to be on their hearts at all times. It was to be taught uh, taught diligently to their children. Israel was to chew on it. They were to marinate in God's law, to think about it and to talk about it in the morning when they would rise up, as they would sit in their houses during the day, as they would walk along the path, and before they would go down to bed at night. Why was that necessary? Well, we, we sang about it this morning, didn't we? It's because the human heart is prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. Our first division puts specifics to the who, where, how, when, and why to love God with heart, soul, and strength. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 12, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully follow in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you to possess as long as you live on earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you are going to dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every leafy tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their memorial stones to pieces, and burn their ashram in the fire, and cut to pieces the carved images of their gods, and you shall eliminate their name from that place. You shall not act this way to the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And you shall come there. You shall bring there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your vowed offerings, your voluntary offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Israel was about to inherit the land. God was going to hand them all the blessings that came along with the land. Houses and pastures, milk and honey, 
pomegranates, fig trees, olive trees, and vineyards, all of these things, God was going to be the one to drive out the inhabitants before them. But Israel had the responsibility to tear down the altars and to destroy the idols that were left behind by the evil Canaanites. Their allegiance was to be to God and God alone. Yahweh is the who and the only who. And just as he chose the people of Israel to be his treasured possession, he was going to choose for them one place to worship, one place for them to bring their sacrifices and their tithes and their offerings. This is the where. And this is not going to be revealed for several centuries, but it will later be revealed under the kingship of Solomon when he built the temple and he placed the tabernacle that we studied about in Numbers into the temple. Now, if you remember our study of the tabernacle, we said that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. So if Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, then the one place points to Jesus as its fulfillment. Jesus is both the who and the where of how to love God with heart, soul, and strength. Now look down at chapter 12, verses 29 and following. When the Lord your God cuts off from you the nations which you are going to end to dispossess, and you dispossess them and live in their land, be careful that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from your presence, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave this way toward the Lord your God, because every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire for their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, nor take anything away from it. So we see here, that once the who and the where are established, Moses reveals the how. They were to worship Yahweh alone in the one place that he chose, in the ways that he had commanded. His distinct laws concerning worship were paramount. A big theme throughout these chapters we see is that Israel was not to be like the other nations. The other nations were evil. They even sacrificed their children to gods that were not real. But not only was Israel not to be like the other nations, look down at verse 8. They're not even to be like the Israelites had been while they were wandering in the desert, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, have I got a spoiler alert for you. If you flip forward and read through the entire book of Judges, that very phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, becomes the chorus of Judges and the downward spiral of the people of Israel after they've already settled into the land. Now, looking at chapter 13, we see Moses warns of three potential cases in which Israel might be prone to idolatry. The first scenario is the case of a false prophet or a dreamer who comes and seduces Israel 
to worship other gods. The second case hits much closer to home. It's the case of a relative who might entice an individual to go after other gods. And the third case is the case of a whole city within the promised land of Israel that is seduced to serve other gods. Moses said that this is going to be the test of Israel's faith. In each of these cases, Israel was to purge the evil from their midst. They were to kill the people that were responsible for this, even if it meant killing a relative or destroying an entire city of Israel. So the how of loving God with heart, soul, and strength means getting rid of all of the temptations to idolatry, even people who might lead others astray. We see also in chapter 14 that this extends to Israel not copying any of the ways of the pagan nations, including copying the ways that they would mourn for their dead, the ways that they would eat unclean animals and sacrifice them to their gods, or copying their magical practices, which is what boiling a goat in his mother's milk was. Israel was to be set apart unto God, distinguishing itself completely from the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. Chapter 16 gives us the answer to the question, when? Corporate worship was a means of showing love and thanksgiving to God. It was a time for the Israelites to remember his goodness to them and to remember his blessings for them. The three annual pilgrimages that were to be to the central place of worship that God would choose, the where, were the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Regular worship, we studied this a month ago, regular worship was to be a rhythm of life so that the Israelite would remember and celebrate God's goodness to them. These feasts are really a small glimpse into what heaven's going to be like when we sit at the banquet feast. Finally, Moses addresses the why. Why was Israel to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength? Well, the answer, I'm sure you saw it, is recorded all throughout the chapters that we've studied. First, that it may go well with you and your children after you, from chapter 12, verse 25. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands, chapter 14, 29. So that the Lord will bless you in all that you do, chapter 15, verse 18. Because the Lord will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands. Chapter 16, verse 15. Loving God with heart, soul, and strength was the way for Israel to remain faithful to the covenant and to continue to receive the covenant blessings of God. Tim Keller said this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. The fundamental motivation behind law-breaking is idolatry. No one breaks the other commandments without breaking the first one. Why do we fail to love or to keep promises or to live unselfishly? 
Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer in any actual circumstance is that there is something you feel you must have to be happy. Something that's more important to your heart than God himself. We would not lie unless we had first made something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. And then he says this, the secret to change is to identify and dismantle the counterfeit gods of your heart. So we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to identify and destroy the counterfeit gods of our heart? What Asherah poles are still standing in your life? What are the things you spend your time looking at? Where your eyes go, the heart will follow. Is it social, social media influencers? Do you find yourself scrolling a good portion of your day away? Are you a news junkie? Maybe you're one of those that likes to look at all the news channels to get every angle of what's going on in the world. What do you spend your time thinking about? Is it UT sports? Is it your next wanderlust vacation that you're planning to take? What tempts you to pursue other things to find fulfillment or to give your life meaning or to make you feel like you're worth something? Is it money? Maybe it's social standing. Maybe it's having the perfect figure or having the right membership to the right club or living in the right neighborhood or sending your children to the right schools or having your children perform up to the standards that you've set so that it'll be a good reflection on you. I remember early in my Christian walk thinking, man, I don't serve idols. I mean, who in this day and age worships a little man-made figure? Not me, not me. Well, God soon showed me that an idol can be anything that takes the place of him in our lives. Any of his good gifts can become an idol if it is elevated to the place of God, even our children. That was certainly one of my idols as a young mom. In Genesis, when God asked Abraham, who had waited 100 years for a son, to take that only son up the mountain and to sacrifice him, God was testing Abraham to find out what was most important to him. Well, we know from studying last year, Abraham passed that test with flying colors. Never once doubting that either God would provide a ram to take the place of his son Isaac on the altar, or that God would raise a dead Isaac back to life. We need to ask ourselves, would I pass that test? Do I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength? Do I put him first in my life? Do I trust him to provide for me? Do I love him and do I rest in the arms of Jesus? By resting in the arms of Jesus, who is our ski instructor for life, we can remember that God has 
already provided for us. He has made atonement. He has paid our debt. He has given us his righteousness and his perfect standing before God the Father. He is the keeper of the covenant. We are inheriting all of the blessings that Jesus has secured for us. So we don't need to look for other things of this world to fill us, to trust him, to save us, to make our lives meaningful, or to feel that we have worth. Jesus is the who, the where, the how, the when, and the why that we can love God with heart, soul, and strength. Now, one sweet thing for me as a beginning skier was that after my first full day of skiing and taking lessons with a pro, I was able to go out and help some of the other beginning skiers who were on our trip who were struggling. One of the natural outpourings of my newfound love and excitement for skiing was that I was going to help others. In Deuteronomy 14 and 15, we see that the outpouring of loving God with heart, soul, and strength is loving others. Israel was to bring a second tithe of crops every year to the place that God would choose. They would celebrate his goodness by having a national party, and they would eat the tithes that they had brought to him. This was worship. This was a public acknowledgement of God's sufficient provision. But it was also a way for them to love others and care for others in their community. Those who had been given the material blessing of land, of crops, and of livestock would share with those who had not been given. This action of loving goes even further with the installation of the third, the third tithe to be given every three years for the Levites, the sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless. The outworking of putting God first is loving others with reckless abandon. Never doubting that God will continue to provide for us. Now, in chapter 15, the sabbatical year also gives testimony to this. At the end of every seventh year, all debts between Israelites were to be canceled, regardless of the amount, regardless of the terms. And on top of that, every Hebrew slave, sometimes they were sold into slavery to pay off a debt, every Hebrew slave was to be set free. Not only set free, but did you notice they were to be sent back with their arms full of crops of wine and of livestock. Now, I want you to think and just imagine for a minute the kind of impact that this must have had on the foreigners and the sojourners among them. Like, who would ever do that? Who is so generous that they will forgive all debts and they'll not only forgive debts, but they'll arm people with stuff to take back with them? Why would they be so generous? These acts, my friends, were a preview of Jesus who cancels our debts and sets us free from the bondage of sin. Luke 4, verses 17 through 19, records Jesus 
applying Isaiah's description of Messiah to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set free all those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In John 13, 35, Jesus also said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If we as Christians were truly taking care of the poor, the widows, and the followers in our community, it would speak volumes to the unbelievers out around us. How do we as a church, as a body of believers, how do we mature into this? Let's look down at Deuteronomy 15, verses 10 and 11. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. As we bless others, we will be a witness of his goodness and his love and his care for his children. We can only love others in this way by realizing first his redeeming love for us, by receiving his grace, and by trusting his promise to continue to provide all we need for life and godliness. That's from 2 Peter 1.3. Now, I've had the privilege and the blessing of walking with my oldest son, Jake, and his wife, Ella, through the process of fostering and adopting five boys from the foster system. Now, if Jake and Ella were here today, they would be the first to tell you that this is by far the hardest thing that they've ever done. They would also then be quick to tell you that it's the biggest blessing that they've ever received. They have to trust they, what they tell you that every day requires them to lean on Jesus, to trust him for his provision and his guidance, to lean on him for his wisdom and understanding, to remember his grace so that they'll have patience in the days with their sons. To, God calls us as his children to walk the harder path. He calls us to do this so that we will have to put our trust in him. That way, we will understand more deeply and, our, and more fully our own need for our Savior Jesus and his incredible love for us. So I want to ask us, can we all challenge ourselves to do the hard thing? Maybe you'll be one that will reach out in your community to take care of the poor and needy or the widows and the orphans. Will you trust him to provide all that you need for life and godliness so that your hands may be open to give in ways that are hard and in ways that are sacrificial? Maybe the Lord is nudging you to be a foster parent or maybe just a respite provider for somebody that is fostering in our community. 
Maybe you can become a surrogate grandmother to some children in your neighborhood whose grandparents may live far away. Maybe you'll just begin volunteering or giving generously to an organization within our community that is serving the poor and the fatherless. Maybe you'll just reach out to a widow you know in our church that might be lonely or might need assistance. God calls us to love one another as Jesus loves. And that means laying down our own wishes and desires, giving up the comforts sometimes that we feel entitled to, and sharing our blessings with others with reckless abandonment. Now I want to segue into our third division, the way of God's appointed leaders. I'm going to go back to my skiing illustration for one more time. Well, there's a basic rule of thumb when it comes to learning to ski and learning how to turn. Always look in the direction that you want to go. Where the head, the shoulders, and the hips point is where the skier will ultimately go. I can vividly remember our area director, some of you may know, Brad Baker. He was an excellent skier, and he would also often spend most of his days helping brand new skiers learn to ski. And Brad was such a good skier that he would ski backwards down the slopes. And the skier that he was trying to teach would be uphill from him. And what Brad would tell that skier is keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. Look at me. And so as Brad would carve the backwards, arc, turning right, and then turning to the left, the skier would ultimately turn his head, shoulders, and body in the direction that they saw Brad go. And as their weight turned, they began to learn the art of turning on skis. Now, if that skier looked down at his own skis, he'd usually fall down. But if he kept his eyes on Brad, the beginner would stay upright and turn also. The leaders of God's people were called to do likewise. They were to keep their eyes on Yahweh, to move as he moved, to go where he led, to do as he instructed. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 give provisions for four types of leaders of Israel, judges, kings, priests, and prophets. First, we see God's provision for upholding justice in the land. In each town, Judges were to be appointed who would judge righteously, without perverting justice, without showing partiality, and without taking bribes. In difficult cases that they couldn't settle on their own, they were to travel to that central place of worship that God was going to choose, to consult with the chief judge and the priests that were there. But the idea behind this is that the chief judge and the priests were closer to the presence of God. And together, they could determine and discern the justice of God and the character of God. The decision of the sanctuary court was final and had to be followed down to the very last detail. Failure to do so was punishable by death. Got another spoiler alert for you. Once in the promised land, Israel's judges are sketchy at best. The need for righteous, a righteous judge points to the need for the true judge, Jesus, who will perfectly mete out justice. 
Next we see God's provision for a king to rule in Israel. Look down at Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that your Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So we see the king of God's own choosing was to keep his eyes focused on Yahweh. He was to keep the law ever before him, reading it all the days of his life. Where the eyes go, the heart will follow. The king was entrusted with the rule of God's earthly kingdom. He was to exercise his rule in connection with God's will and in total dependence on God, not like the kings of the other nations who were only dependent upon themselves. He was not to store up horses, chariots, wives, or riches like the kings of the other nations did. The king of Israel was to trust God to provide for them, to protect them, to fight all of their battles, and to be their crowning glory. Spoiler alert number three. If you flip over just a couple of books to 1 Kings, and you look in chapters 4, chapter 10, and chapter 11, you will see that this was not followed even by one of the better kings of God's own choosing, King Solomon, son of David. It reads this. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. My study Bible tells me that that's the equivalent of 25 tons of gold every year. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And this is the most telling part of the scripture. It says, and his wives led him astray. The failure of the kings of Israel creates a longing for a true king who will perfectly fulfill the law of God. The true king Jesus, the chosen one, 
of God, who reigns now on high at the right hand of God and is waiting for God to put all enemies under his feet, at which time he will come again, create the new heavens and the new earth, and take his rightful place as king over all. The third type of leader in Israel, the priests, were also to keep their eyes focused on the Lord in order to lead the people in proper worship. Chapter 18 tells us that they were to have no inheritance among their brothers in the land because the Lord is their inheritance. They were to feast on him and celebrate him. God had sweetly provided for the Levites and the priests through the sacrifices and tithes of the people. The priests were to instruct the people to follow precisely the ways of worship that were given to them by God himself. Under no circumstances were they to follow the abominable practices of the nations around them or the nations that they had driven out. Spoiler alert number four. If you flip forth to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you can read about the wicked priestly sons of the high priest Eli who profaned the sacrifices by taking more than their portion. And not only that, they slept with the women in the temple who would congregate there. The failure of Israel's priests begs for a true high priest who would offer the perfect sacrifice and lead the people in true worship of God. Now, if you look down at the end of chapter 18, God promises the fourth type of leader for Israel, and we're almost finished. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, the Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Though the nations around them consulted magicians, sorcerers, and the dead for guidance, Israel was to listen only to God through the mouth of the prophets that he would raise up. Spoiler alert number five. Israel did not listen to the line of prophets that God sent. And many corrupt prophets arose among them. Before the kingdom of Judah was exiled off to Babylon for their idolatry and for their failure to worship God, Jeremiah, a true prophet of God, said this, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their own means. And my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end? Even the prophets sent by God were pointing to the need for a better prophet. The offices of the leaders of Israel were together a foreshadow of the perfect prophet, priest, king, and judge, Jesus. Jesus would be the one to judge with justice and to rule with righteousness. He is the one about whom Isaiah wrote, For us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
Not only is Jesus the perfect king and judge, but wait, there's more. That was a joke if y'all were here on Sunday. That's what James did. James did. He's the perfect priest who offered up the perfect and final sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9.12 says this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And, but wait, there's more. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus said in John 7.16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Like Moses, Jesus is our intercessor and our mediator. The more we see Jesus and come to know him, the more we will love him for who he is and for what he's done for us. All we have to do is to repent and believe and to submit ourselves to the true prophet, the true priest, the true king and the true judge, Jesus. The way that we love God and love others is by being conformed to the image of the one who first loved us. Jesus is the way. Let's pray. Father God, gosh, we know how hard it is. We know that our hearts are prone to wander. We do pray, Lord, that you will take our hearts and seal it for your courts above, Lord. We pray that as we saturate, saturate ourselves in the word of God, that you would teach us, that you would keep us um, perfectly preserved for eternity, Lord, and that you will also make us leave this room, not as people who've just heard the word, but as doers of the word, and press upon each of us that you would have us do to show your love to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.